Welcome to the Celebration Church Orlando podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Hey church, I pray that you and your family are doing well. My family and I are doing great, but what I got to tell you is that we miss you so much. I can't wait for us all to come together and gather again, but I am so grateful for moments like this where we are still able to engage with one another, encourage one another through social media, through our online platform. So I pray that you're staying encouraged. I pray that you're staying engaged and I pray that you stay connected. I also want to spend a quick shout out to all of the teams behind the scenes that are helping us to bring church at home to you every single week. We couldn't do it without those guys. So I want to send everyone that may be watching it at home, those who are with us right now. Thank you guys so, so much for the way that you serve us so faithfully. We're so grateful for you. And I'm excited about today's message. It's been something that's really been on my heart for the better part of a month. And it's really been stirring. And I'm excited to share it with you because I think that it can be an encouragement for us. I think it can be empowering for us and it can prepare us as we step into this next season of Pentecost as we go into what we truly believe God has for us. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 36. Yep, that's right. We're going Old Testament today. Isaiah chapter 36. And there's a powerful passage here that beautifully illustrates our dependence of God. I want to share what it says here in a couple of the verses. It says here, starting at verse number one, in the 14th year, King Hezekiah, um, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Senegrab, king of Assyria, rised up against him in the fortified cities and took them in Judah. That's really important because King Hezekiah is the king of Israel. He's the king of the Israelites. He's the king of the Jews. He's, he's, he's the one who has oversight over all these different areas. But now there's a king, a king in Assyria, who has now rallied against them. And what it says right here in the first verse, it says that the king of Assyria, he sent his armies and they surrounded and they captured the land of Judah. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to that. And this is what the king of Assyria said. He sends Rabshakeh. That's a lot to say, so we're just going to call my man Rab. So he sends my man Rab. He sends Rab into the Israelite camp, and, and he says this to King Hezekiah. He begins to talk to them, and they meet at this spot called the Washer's Field, a very powerful place where other kings have come, and they've fallen, and they've compromised. So it's this very familiar location in the history of the children of Israel, but there's a powerful moment here. And then he comes, and so Hezekiah sends out some of his dignitaries. He sends out some of his people to come out and have a conversation because this is just a matter of diplomacy. But what it says here at verse number four is something that I think is so powerful for us. It says here, verse number four, Rab says to them, he says, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? I want to let that question just settle for a second. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Ultimately, what he was saying is, is that I thought we had a relationship here. I thought that we had this union, this commitment, this covenant, where we were going to try to do life together. Ultimately, what it meant is that the Israelites, they were under, they were being protected by the Assyrians. But now the Israelites had this ridiculous idea that they wanted to be free. Imagine that. And so now the Assyrian king has sent his people and said, on what do you place this trust of yours? Your trust should be in us, but you've placed your trust in something else. And so it's a very taunting question asking, on what do you place this trust of yours? Looking at verse number five, he says this, and this is something that's powerful. He says, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? He's asking this question. 
Do you think that you have the words that's going to get you out of this situation? Do you think that your words are going to serve as any strategy for war? He continues to go on, and he now begins to strategically unravel every testimony that the Israelites may have. He begins to attack their victories over Egypt. He begins to let them believe that maybe God sent him there to be a sign of judgment. He's literally beginning to, to speak condemnation and to accentuate fear into the minds and into the hearts of the children of Israel. This is a very, a very epic scene. And so as we move down a, a little bit further, as we see this conversation going back and forth, we now see that Hezekiah's dignitaries, they say this to him. They say, hey, man, listen, we, we hear what you're saying, but it would be great if we could just kind of like use some different language. Because what they were doing is that the, the, the enemy was speaking a language that everybody understood. So in an effort to try to protect the people from being made afraid of the attacks of the adversary, they said, hey, can we speak the language of diplomacy? And then an utter sign of rebellion and arrogance. He said, I didn't come here just to speak to you. I came here to basically plant fear into the hearts of every single person that is around us. While they were trying to protect the people from being afraid, the enemy responded with this idea of making sure that we want everyone to hear it. And so now there's this powerful statement where it says, do not let King Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not deliver you. The enemy was speaking to God's people and saying, don't you dare believe in what the man of God is saying. Don't you believe in what he's saying. There's no way possible that what he is saying is going to come to pass. The enemy was basically communicating that they will not be delivered. Verse number 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is now making negotiations with him and saying, your best bet would be come to be on my side. Partner with me, because if you listen to Hezekiah, it's going to get you killed. All these things are going on. All these emotions are going on. And there's all this stuff that they're being processed through. But I love what it says here. The Bible tells us when we look at the scriptures, it says, but they answered him not a word. Verse number 21 is so powerful, but they were silent and they answered him not a word because the king had told them not to speak. I really want to talk to us for a couple of moments about those times when the enemy can show up like a flood and we have, don't have all the answers but God is compelling us to have a response. What I want you to do is I want you to write this down. I want you to commit this to your spirit. I truly believe that this has the potential of changing the way that you engage conflict from this point forward. And I simply want to ask you this question. When the enemy comes in like a flood, how do you respond? I want you to write that down. What is your response in the moments when the enemy shows up? Let's pray and let's unpack what God's word is saying to us in this moment. God, we're so thankful. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for opportunities where we can gather in your name. So Father, I pray in the next few moments that you give us open eyes that we can see you, open ears that we can hear you, and open hearts that we can receive your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. You know, I think all of us probably have had moments where we felt a little bit overwhelmed. Moments where it seemed as if we were, we were living our best lives, living life on our own terms, and then it seems like one thing after another shows up, and it really can, can, can leave us a little bit disoriented. It can leave us a little bit distracted, where it's one thing after another after another. And sometimes for some of us, this is kind of like a, a season that we go through. Sometimes it's like a moment. When we look at the, the book of Job and the, the suffering of Job, it was like one thing after another after another. How do you respond when you have so many questions, but you don't think that the answers could potentially help you to move forward. For some of us, it could be as recent as the season that we're in right now. I know that many of us, as we process through this whole COVID-19, and we're trying to process through the reality of what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for my job? What does it mean for my church? These are realities that we all can sometimes find ourselves wrestling with and saying that we have a lot of questions, but I don't know how to respond. I don't have all the answers. I could even speak for myself personally. 
that as my family and I are, are doing our best to, 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 to govern and protect my family, at the same time, I, I realize that we have a team of people that we work alongside of. And when this virus really began to hit, there was this moment of a little bit of panic as you're going out into grocery stores and you're, you're seeing that there's scarcity of everything. There's, there's almost like this fear that begins to um, capture the, the, the aroma that we breathe. So all it seems as if you're doing is you're even breathing in hopelessness. You're, bringing, you're breathing in fear. You're breathing in this, this moment of anxiety. And so even going to the grocery store was anxiety. Going to, to get gas was a, a little bit of anxiety. Wondering what the next steps are going to be. What does it mean for our church? What does it mean for the staff? What does it mean for the people that call Celebration Church Orlando home? There's a lot of questions and we don't often have a lot of answers. How do we respond to these moments? I think that some of us can relate to that. And as we process through all that, I want us to consider for a moment that this is the reality that the children of Israel find themselves in, where they're living their lives. Can you imagine? You're just living your life. You're minding your own business. And then one day, this man shows up. And maybe you have context of what's going on. Maybe you don't. But this man shows up and he brings 185,000 soldiers with him. They move into this land that is called Judah, this land that, is, that has been given to Judah. And he comes out in a lot of pomp and circumstance. I don't know why, but in my mind, I just envision, I just visualize a, a scene from like, I don't know, from Game of Thrones or something, a big battle scene that's about to take place. And now there's a whole lot of exchange and, and conversation going back and forth. It kind of reminds me of, of Lord of the Rings, like this moment where we're lined up and then someone comes out and he opens up with this statement, on who do you place this trust of yours? It seems like a very dramatic moment, but I wanna draw your attention to the location that this happens in. As I mentioned, it takes place in the area called Judah. Now, I'm starting to notice a pattern in scripture, and maybe you've seen it as well, but I'm starting to notice that it seems as if that there's these moments when the enemy shows up and he seems to position himself in areas that have been given to Judah. We see the same thing with, with David and Goliath. When that whole battle takes place, they're actually battling in a land that had been designated for Judah. And we often see in scripture, there these, there's a significance to Judah. Now we know that the name Judah translates to praise. So we understand that. But ultimately what praise is in this context, it simply means is bringing glory to God. So I want you to see this with me. The enemy positioned himself in an area that we should be bringing God glory. Are you seeing the dots now? Isn't it interesting how something that is designated for God, that something that should bring God glory is the very area that the enemy seems to attack the most frequently? Let me make it plain for us for a moment. Do you realize that our marriages bring glory to God? Did you know that our workplace, we are able to bring glory to God? The way that we steward our lives, we are able to bring glory to God. Our families are an expression in a way that we can bring glory to God. But isn't it interesting? And everything that I just mentioned, that seems to be the areas that the enemy shows up the most. He shows up in our marriages in an effort to try to strip away God's glory. He shows up in our resources, in our jobs, in an effort to strip away God's glory. He even shows up in our families in an effort to strip away God's glory. Isn't it interesting how the enemy has this strategy of showing up in places that he can try to strip away any glory that we can give to God? I believe that there's power in this, and I want you to hear me in this, because we know that there's power in our praise. We know that when we are able to praise God, that God shows up. So the enemy loves to silence us in areas where we know that if we can just get God involved, that we will be ushered into victory. We see in scripture that even with Gideon, when he had his 300 men, that he didn't have a lot of resources. He didn't have a lot of strength. But what the Bible says is when they engaged in battle, that it says that we're going to send Judah first, and it brought confusion to the enemy. Do you know that sometimes that when we can just lift up our voices, 
and give God praise that it brings confusion to the enemy because the enemy doesn't understand why are you praising God when you just lost your job? Why are you praising God when everything at home seems to be filled with chaos? The thing that we used to pray about becomes the things that we praise about when the enemy gets involved. And I wanna challenge some of us right now. I suspect that there's some of us and we're not praising God the way that we used to because maybe the enemy has begun to whisper in our ear to try to silence us because I truly believe that the enemy is thinking to himself, if I can steal your praise, I can steal your power. But it's in moments like this that we have to dig down deep and say that I may not see the evidence of what I'm looking for right now. I may not have the breakthrough right now, but I know that God inhabits my praise. And even if I'm in a season of suffering, that even if I'm in a season of struggle, I'm not going to allow the enemy to steal my praise. The enemy has a very calculated strategy to position himself in areas that can bring God glory. But we have a choice to make. How are we going to respond? I love the language that begins to get used here. As I mentioned earlier, as they're processing through everything that's happening on what or on who do you place your trust in, the Bible says that they're having this conversation. And he now begins to strategically walk them through the process to let them know that the things that God has done in their past is not going to be the thing that leads them into their future. Why why is that? Let's, Let's process this for just a moment. Let's consider this for just a moment, that for the children of Israel, One of their biggest testimonies is the fact that God delivered them from Egypt. Do you remember that? Do you remember our Exodus narrative when we walked through the entire book where we were talking about how God showed up on behalf of the children of Israel and took a bunch of slaves and rendered judgment on the Egyptians and allowed them to experience freedom and wholeness. Remember the the manna from heaven, all the things that we saw God do. So all that is connected to the Egyptian narrative. But isn't it interesting how when the enemy shows up, He begins to say, on what do you place this trust of yours? Are you placing your trust in the Egyptians? Now, there was a connection to the fact that maybe they were trying to establish a partnership with Egypt in hopes that maybe they could defeat the Assyrians. But honestly, what was underneath of all that is what the enemy was saying is, I know that you are thinking that God delivered you from Egypt, but here's what I want you to know. I'm not Egypt. This ain't that. Have you you ever had those moments in your life? where you feel like, I know that God has done some good things for me. I know what God has done in my own life, but yet somehow in the back of your mind, you're still wondering, but can he do it this time? I assure you that 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 thought, that is the enemy showing up and saying to you, don't place any hope on what God has done in your past because this, this ain't that. I know that you may have survived the bankruptcy, but you won't survive the loss of your job. I know that you may have survived um, the abuse in a relationship, but you won't survive. You won't survive the divorce. It's interesting how the enemy brings comparison into our minds and saying like, yeah, you may have survived some things in the past, but this ain't that. We're not the Egyptians. We're the Assyrians. We're a lot stronger than that. And I believe that there's moments like this when we begin to hear this, that it can begin to give us fear, even in spite of the fact that we've seen the goodness of God in our lives. You know, as they're having this conversation, It's interesting how they then begin to shift it because now what the people of God are saying, they're saying to the adversary, the one who was who was violating the borders. They said, "Okay, like, let's change the conversation a little bit. Can we just talk so that we can figure out what negotiations look like instead of allowing fear to saturate the minds and the hearts of everyone around us? Let's speak a language that maybe they don't understand, because from their perspective, they just wanted to prevent the people from having their innocence stolen from them. They probably knew that in some way that God was going to figure it out, but they wanted to keep, they wanted to keep the people, they want to protect their innocence. And as a father, I can tell you there are many times that I do everything I can do to try to protect the innocence of my children, specifically when they were young. 
The moments when I knew that there was a very ugly world that was outside, and I was wondering how long can I protect them from the ugliness of the world? How, can I, how long can I protect them from the ugliness of racism? How long can I protect them from the, the ugliness of oppression? How long can I protect them from the ugliness of the world because you don't want their innocence to be stolen from them because you realize there's a little bit of a shift that happens when they begin to see suffering in the world. This is exactly what's happening here. They're just making every effort to protect the people's innocence. And I think for some of us, we probably can relate to that. Things that we've done, decisions that we've made in an effort to try to protect the innocence of people around us. We're not trying to keep it, we're not trying to keep it secret, but we're trying to keep it private because as a, as a father, and I know that some of you can relate to this, it's so hard to process through your own fear and to carry someone else's at the same time. Sometimes you are filled with your own stress and sometimes you're filled with your own anxiety. So when you're trying to protect people's innocence, you're also trying to protect your sanity. You're thinking to yourself, I, I need to process this with God first, and then I can help to help other people process through it. But unfortunately, we always don't get an opportunity to have those sequence of events. Unfortunately, there are times where things get beyond our control and it begins to leak. And so now what the adversary does is he says, not only am I not gonna change my language, I'm gonna speak even louder. He begins to speak a language that everyone understands in an effort to try to pump them full of fear even more trying to create more chaos, trying to create more division, trying to create more confusion. This is the strategy of the enemy from the very beginning and he continues to do it now. Chaos, confusion, fear, chaos, confusion, fear, an effort to try to keep us from being unified and solidarity. But I love how it says here. It says here that they did not answer him a single word. They didn't respond to him. They, they, didn't, they didn't argue back and forth with him. They didn't debate with them. They didn't spend a lot of energy having a conversation with someone that they knew they weren't gonna be able to change their minds. Now, I want you guys to hear me real closely. I am all for having fruitful conversations that help us to move forward. I'm all for being able to come to the table and reason together, even as scripture talks about. Maybe for many of those who are connected to our family, Pastor Charlie and I, we came together and we had a conversation about race. And it was a beautiful conversation because we came to the table and we had a fruitful conversation in hopes that it's gonna move all of us forward. That's different versus being in combative debates with people who are very uninterested in hearing a solution that brings us closer together. What I can tell you is this, we've gotta stop spending energy arguing with people that are not interested in trying to get to a solution that we believe that can bring us to a place of wholeness. I think sometimes we're so busy trying to give people a piece of our minds that we're wondering why we no longer have a peace of mind. We can get something off our chest, but it comes at the expense of losing what's in our heart. And what they're showing us here is that we need to have fruitful conversations that help us to move forward. I wanna encourage somebody right now, Please stop arguing with people over social media. I have not seen one social media debate change someone's heart yet. We can have a conversation that's gonna move us forward, but I'm not gonna to continue to position myself in areas where I'm trying to disciple somebody over Instagram comment. Stop putting yourself in a place where all you're doing is fueling your frustration and losing your peace. And what I love about this is that when the enemy shows up, they didn't even bother responding to him. It says they didn't respond to him. Sometimes we're so busy talking to people and beginning to accelerate the problem and we need to be talking to the solution. They shifted their attention from talking to the enemy to begin saying, we need to talk to God about this. What if that was a sequence of events for us? That when the enemy shows up, instead of us debating and arguing with the enemy, that we begin to shift our attention and begin to consult God about it. Here's what the scripture tells us. The Bible tells us that they shift their attention. They bring all this information to Hezekiah. And what Hezekiah does is something that I believe is so powerful. It says that he goes up to the house of God. He gets this bad news, but he goes up to the house of God. 
He hears about the land of Judah being surrounded, but he goes to the house of God. He hears that they're about to be attacked by 185,000 soldiers, and his response is to go to the house of God. But not only did he go to the house of God, he also said, hey, can you get me in contact with the man of God? So I want us to see this. He says, I need to go to the house of God, and I also need to consult godly wisdom. I need to go to the house of God and I need to consult godly wisdom. I don't need to get wisdom from someone who's in the same situation as me. I don't need to get wisdom from someone who hasn't been in a circumstance that I've been in. I need to get wisdom from someone who's gonna speak with a godly context and not someone who's gonna speak from the book of their opinions. He says, I need to get counsel from someone who is in touch with God. I'm gonna go talk to God for myself, but I need to get godly wisdom. And what the scripture tells us is that after he hears from Isaiah, the prophet, the prophet says to him, you have nothing to be worried about. God is with you, and I assure you, what the enemy is saying is not going to come to pass. How often have we had those moments where we've had the bad news come, and then maybe we go to church, maybe we go to our small group, maybe we're out with some friends, and then someone speaks an encouraging word to us, and it's exactly what we needed to hear. It's so inspirational, so filled with hope, and you're like, man, that must have been from God. How would the pastor know that I was walking through that? That must have been from God. How would that worship song be able to perfectly minister to my situation? And those are moments and reminders that God is with us. But you know what happens next? It actually gets worse. It gets worse, guys. It gets gets much worse. What ends up happening is, is that the king of Assyria, he learns that, that maybe Hezekiah is getting filled with a little bit of faith, that he's getting filled up with a little bit of courage. So he follows up this threat with an actual handwritten letter. I want to write this letter to you so it's written down so you can understand I'm not playing with you. So the letter gets sent to Hezekiah. Hezekiah just came from the house of God. He got an incredible word from God, and then it gets worse. Have you ever found yourself going into a space where you surrender it to God? You get confirmation that it's going to be good. You're going to get a job, and you're going to be blessed. You're going to see so many things happen in your life. When you tithe, I promise you it's going to come back to you a hundredfold. All these powerful thoughts that we see, man, if you could just pray for your marriage, your marriage is going to get stronger. If you could pray about your job, your job's going to get better. And then the moment that you pray about it, it seems like it gets a little bit worse. Let me say it right here. The moment that you pray about it, it seems like it gets a little bit worse. The moment that you pray about it, it gets a little bit worse. How can confusing and frustrating can it be for us sometimes that when we surrender it to God, it seems like it gets a little bit worse. I want you to know that you're in good company because the Bible tells us about the children of Israel. And what it says is that while they were going through this audacious process of getting set free from their bondage in Egypt, which we mentioned earlier, that it didn't get better. It actually got worse, that the enemy came in even stronger. And I can remember seasons of my wife's life where she was dealing with a difficult boss. Can I say horrible boss? Can I say terrible boss? I mean awful, you guys aren't alone. She had an awful boss. And I remember that she would come home so frustrated, so disappointed, but we would pray about it. We would write down scriptures about it. Pray for those who spitefully use you. She would take those scriptures and put them on post-it notes on her door. She would have them up sitting at her desk. And do you know that sometimes it actually got a little bit worse? What do you do when you turn the other cheek but the enemy keeps throwing left hooks? If it's me, you swing back. No, okay, what you, what you gotta do is you gotta continue to trust God. So what I love, this is what happens. The Bible says that Hezekiah gets this information. He literally has this letter. He then takes this letter, he turns around and goes right back to the house of God. I want you to see this. He gets this information that lets him know that it's getting worse, but he takes it and goes right back to the house of God. He doesn't run away from the house of God. He doesn't run away from the place, but but watch this. He goes back to the place that the promise was confirmed. This is symbolic of what we see that happens in those moments in the Bible where they go back to the altar. 
It's going back to the place of the promise. It's going back to the place where you knew that God, that you had this encounter with God. It's not running away from the places of God, but it's going back to the place that God had given me this promise. There are seasons of my life where when my wife and I are going through different upgrades, I call them, those seasons where we seem like we're growing apart a little bit, but then we have to recalibrate and then we can grow again. We grow apart a little bit, we recalibrate and grow again. This is a natural part of, of being married. But there's those moments when you're beginning to grow apart. You're growing a little bit different. The person that I am when I was 20, when we first started dating versus the person that I am in 40, completely different people. So there's times that you need to go back to the place that the promise was confirmed. You gotta have an altar in your mind that says, I remember when God told me that this is the woman that's for me. And even though right now we're not on the same page, I'm gonna take the promise back to the place that I got it from. I'm gonna take this problem back to the place of the promise. What I believe for many of us, when we find ourselves dealing with problems, we forget to go Go back to the place of the promise. But I believe it's in moments like this that if we can just begin to reorient ourselves, fight as hard as we can to take the problem and go back to the place of the promise, we can then begin to get encouraged as a result of it. The Bible says something really powerful here. Because after, after Hezekiah, that after he goes back into the place of the promise, it says that he lays the problems out, that he literally takes the letter and he lays them for, before God. And he says, Lord, do you see what's going on here? He's talking, to, he's talking to his Lord. He's talking to us, say, but Lord, do you see what's going on here? I'm laying it all out in front of you. Do you see the stress and the anxiety that we're going through? Do you see the pain and the suffering that's happening with my people? I got a word from you that said that everything is going to work itself out, but are you seeing this? The enemy has doubled down and said that he's going to make it that much worse. Are you seeing what's going on here? And what I love is the way that God responds to this. I love how God begins to encourage Hezekiah in this moment. And what it says here in the scripture, it says here at, in chapter 37, verse 21, it says, because you have prayed concerning this. Let me stop right there. Because you have prayed concerning this. I'll sum up the rest of it. He says, I'm gonna turn it around. Not only am I gonna turn it around and not only are you going to survive, but you're going to thrive. But I love the way that he sets it up because you have prayed about this. I wanna to talk to somebody right now. Because you have prayed, you will get your breakthrough. Because you have surrendered, you will see God move. So often, I think that we don't believe that our prayer makes a difference. And I believe that we allowed ourselves to have this weird theology where we believe that God's gonna do whatever he wants to do and that our prayers are just arbitrary touch points. No, but every time I look in scripture and I see that people are engaged in moments of struggle, success, whenever we come into the presence of God, that is symbolic of us praying. We look at the life and ministry of Jesus. He is the embodiment. He is perfect theology. And we see that he is praying. So I wanna let you know there is power in your prayer. Don't you for one second believe that your prayer doesn't make a difference. Don't you believe that God's mind is made up and he's going to do whatever he wants to do? What scripture shows me is that because he prayed, he got his breakthrough. Let me give us some examples. The Bible tells us about Abraham and he's made aware that Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed, but his nephew Lot is there. And what the scripture tells us is that he begins to have a conversation with God. What is prayer? Talking to God. He begins to have a negotiation, a conversation with God. And as a result, Lot is preserved because he prayed. Lot's life was restored. Let me tell you a little 
little bit about Mary and Martha. Their brother Lazarus was sick unto death. And what the Bible says is that they could have just waited. They could have just ignored it. They could have figured that Jesus would eventually pass by, but they got a message to Jesus. They got a, They found a way to say, Jesus is over here. Let's send him a message. That's a form of prayer. Lord, we need you to get involved in this. And when Jesus shows up, they said, Lord, if you just would have been here, then my brother would still be alive. And Jesus' response was, where have you laid him? Because you have prayed, Jesus is willing to walk into the place of death and bring a newness to life. Let me tell you a little bit about the woman with the issue of blood. The Bible says that she was dealing with this affliction for 12 years and she was an outcast in society and that she didn't even have a right to be in a public setting. But there was a discernment, there was, a, there was an ambition inside of her that pressed through the crowd, that pressed through the shame, that pressed through the disappointment. She fought to get into the presence of Jesus because she prayed, she was able to get her breakthrough and her miracle. Let me tell you a story about the disciples. The Bible talks about how they were on a boat one day and that Jesus was asleep and a storm came in and they thought that they were going to lose their lives. They didn't know what to do. And so their reaction was to go and get Jesus, a form of prayer. Let me go and get Jesus involved, presencing their problems in the presence of their Savior. And then Jesus gets up and he says, peace be still. Because you pray, maybe your storm could be made to go quiet. What I want you to understand is that there's moments where we need to make sure that we're presencing our pain into the presence of our Savior. Because we pray, because we pray, blind eyes are open. Because we pray, we see miracles happen. Because we pray, we've seen so many instances where marriages are restored. Because we pray, we see breakthroughs that happen all the time. I know that the enemy is stepping to you. I know that it may seem that he's coming in like a flood and you want to know what your answer is, but your response is prayer. I need to presence my problem in the presence of my Savior. And because you prayed, I believe that God's going to turn it around. If we were in church, this is the spot where everybody would be clapping right now. You're with me. I want us to be encouraged right now. Your prayers matter. Your, your prayers are powerful. That every time you find yourself presencing your problems in the presence of your Savior, that because you prayed, that God is going to get involved. I know we've said it this way before, that when we pray, it changes us. And I believe that 100%. But I think there's another side of that coin that we often leave out. Yeah, when we pray, maybe it does change us. But sometimes when we pray, God changes it. Maybe this is one of those moments where we persevere, where we hold on and we press in knowing that if I can presence my problems in the presence of God, that God is going to absolutely turn it around. God begins to speak and he says, and I'm about to show up and I'm going to do a new thing. Now, this is where... This is where the Bible gets just dramatic. Like I, I, I'm trying to process what, what this could have looked like because it says that the angel of the Lord shows up, that God shows up, and he slays 185,000 men by himself. I, I don't know what that looks like. I can't process what it is, but it says that, that he slayed 185,000 men by himself, and when the people woke up, they saw the dead bodies laying around. Here's the thing I want you to see, that they went to sleep, the problem was there, they woke up, the problem wasn't there anymore. In other words, they were able to rest in the presence of God. I wish I had time to get into that a little bit more. So here's the question that I think that maybe we need to provide an answer for. Remember earlier, my man Rab showed up and he says, on whom do you place this trust of yours? You know what our answer is? Jesus. I place my trust in Jesus. We trust in the Lord and lean not to our own understanding. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him. I trust in Jesus. I don't trust in my own strength. I don't trust in my own gifts. I don't trust in my own abilities. I don't even trust myself. 
But when I am finding myself in positions where the question is being posed on who or on what are you placing your trust in? I'm placing my trust in the Lord. I love what it says here. It's Psalm 20, because I think it beautifully illustrates what it means to have utter dependence on God. Verse number seven, it says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. That's who we place our trust in. I don't trust in, I don't trust in the media. I don't trust in politics. I don't trust in people's opinions. I place my trust in the Lord. I think that there's these moments where we get posed with these questions on who do you trust in? Do you trust in your college degree? Do you, do you somehow trust in man's ability to, to navigate your life perfectly for you? No, I place my trust in the Lord. There's these moments where we have to understand that when as long as I can have God on my side, that no matter what the circumstance may be around me, it, it means nothing to the God that's on the inside of me. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I, I love this idea that you are never outnumbered when the Lord is on your side that you're never outnumbered when the Lord is on your side. And I love this story that we'll find in, in the book of Kings where it talks about how the, the people of God, they were surrounded. They could actually count and see the overwhelming forces that were with the enemy. And the Bible says this, that Elijah has this prayer. He says, open up my servant's eyes that he can see what I can see, that he can see that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You may feel like you're surrounded, but we're surrounded by the very presence of God that whenever it's you and God against a countless number of enemies, it's not a fair fight, that you are never outnumbered when God is on your side. I want you to understand that because you pray, that because you presence your problems in the presence of your savior, that God shows up and that he turns it around. So when the enemy shows up and asks you, on who do you place your trust in? I place my trust in Jesus because this is how we fight our battles. I recognize that it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by the presence of God. It may look like I'm surrounded by debt, but I'm surrounded by the presence of God. It may look like I'm surrounded by condemnation, but I'm surrounded by the presence of God. It may look like I'm surrounded by conflict, but I'm surrounded by the presence and the power of God. So when the enemy is trying to to goad you into a debate. This is how I fight my battle. My praise is how I fight my battle. The word of God is how I fight my battle. Trusting God is how I fight my battle. When the enemy comes in like a flood, this is how we lift up our standard. This is how we fight our battle by giving it to God. In Jesus' name. And this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. And this is how. This is how I find my battles. This is how I find my battles. This is how I find my battles. And this is how. And this is how I find my battles. This is how I find my battles. This is how I find my
Man, that is about all we have for you guys. But listen, we never let a service here at Celebration, church at home or live, go by without giving someone, one of you guys out there, the opportunity to accept Jesus into your heart or for those of you to rededicate your life, man. Maybe maybe Jesus really spoke to you over these last few moments we've had together for church at home. And maybe you've realized some things about yourself. Maybe one, you've realized that you don't know Jesus, that you've never had a moment in your life where you've said, Jesus, here's my life. I'm trusting you with my life. I know what you did for me on the cross, and I know what that means for me. And uh, you want to give your life to Christ for the very first time today. We want to give you an opportunity. But also, man, maybe there's some of you out there that you've had that moment in your life where you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But man, maybe over these last several months, or these last several years, you have not been living like you were following Jesus. But today, you want to get right with him, and you want to read dedicate your life. I want to give you an opportunity to do that here today. So if you want to dedicate or rededicate your life with Jesus, I just want to lead you in a prayer of salvation. You can right now at home just repeat this simple prayer of faith out loud after me. Jesus, I stand before you today asking you to forgive me of all my sins and all my mistakes. Today I choose to live for you. I choose to make you my Lord and my Savior. From this point forward, I'm going to live my life, the rest of my life, for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church. Well, man, for those of you who just made a decision, congratulations. The best decision that you will ever make. We're celebrating with you as a church. We're celebrating with you as a staff and as a team. And all of heaven is celebrating with you as well. And for those of you who just made a decision, man, we want to know about that. We want to know the decision you made. So if you just dedicated or rededicated your life to Jesus, we want to encourage you to text the word DECIDE to 25101. One. Well, now, church, what I would like to do is I would like to lead us, as we always do uh, for church, I would like to lead us in a moment of communion. So if you have your communion uh, elements with you uh, right now in front of you, go ahead and get those together. And if you don't, if you don't have anything, man, I want to encourage you, man, maybe you just say some cinnamon rolls for breakfast. Maybe you got some coffee around you. If you don't have any juice or, or any bread to take, use what you have around you. You can just hit pause right now. Go grab that, and we'll go ahead and do communion right now. So if you have your communion elements with you, uh, man, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
he was sitting with his disciples and he reached across the table and he grabbed a loaf of bread and he began to break it and hand it out to his disciples. And he asked all his disciples to take this bread. And what he said, he's like, guys, this bread that you hold in your hand, what this represents, this represents the body, my body, that is about to be broken for you. And then what we know as, as, as believers, what we know as a church is that body that was broken, man, that body was broken to make us whole as believers. So if you have uh, your bread or whatever you have around you, you, you can go ahead and take that and we'll take it together as a body of believers. After Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and they all partook of that bread, he then grabbed uh, some wine or some juice or whatever you have around you and he, he held it up and he said, he said, guys, this, this, what you're about to drink, this represents the blood that is going to be shed for, 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 for your sins. Um, and so he held it out to his disciples. He said, as much as you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me and what I'm about to do. So church, let's drink. God, we thank you so much uh, for what you did for us, God. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus, God, who came to this earth, Lord, to save every single one of us. We thank you uh, for the body that was broken for us to make us whole. And we thank you for the blood that was shed uh, for us to, to wash us of all of our sins, God, to make us clean, to make us right in your eyes. We thank you so much, Father. And we pray, Lord, just as what we just did right here in this moment of remembering you and remembering what you did for us, God, that throughout this week, God, throughout our life, that every time we grab of any bread or any drink, we will drink and eat in remembrance of you. God, we love you and we praise you. And we pray, amen. Amen. And church, don't forget to stay connected um, with us. Text 25101. Text the word connect. Um, and then if you took any pictures uh, throughout the service, we want to see those. Let and we want to um, connect with you through that. And so tag us at Celebration ORL so that um, we can see your church at home experience. Yeah. And we can experience that with you vicariously through your picture. Absolutely. Um, but uh, we love you, church, so much. And so don't forget to text connect to 25101. And then let us connect with you by seeing your pictures. 100%. Guys, thank you so much for joining us, man. We hope to see you guys throughout the week on Instagram and online. We hope you guys have a great week. today's message. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and review and share what you've heard today. If you'd like more content like this, or you'd like to connect with us, go to celebrationorl.org. We hope you join us next time.